If it's a surprise to you that the retail print book business is struggling, then you should read this week's New Republic. Writer Alex Shepard reports there his discovery that Barnes & Noble is operating at a loss. Should this trend continue, he warns, the outcome would be catastrophic for readers. Welcome to Copyright Clearance and his podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. Of course, book lovers have watched the decline of bookstores for years. Ironically, Barnes & Noble bears a good share of the blame. With analysis on that topic and all the week's publishing news, Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, joins me now from New York City. And welcome back to Beyond the Book, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So this week, uh, we got the fourth quarter results for Barnes & Noble, and they have made headlines in a somewhat dramatic and maybe even overly dramatic fashion. So tell us about that. That's right. Uh, Barnes & Noble this week posted its fiscal 2016 fourth quarter results. And I'll spare you the specific numbers here and just tell you that you can read all about those results on the Publishers Weekly website and in Monday's issue. But I can say that no one will be surprised that the bookseller has posted yet another loss, although it should be noted uh, somewhat of a narrower loss than in previous years, and also its total revenue declined from 2015. But apparently, at least one person was taken a little bit by surprise, and that's uh, the New Republic writer Alex Shepard, who appears to have finally discovered that Barnes & Noble, which has been struggling for the last two decades, uh, he wrote an article called Pulp Friction, which made the claim that, and I'm quoting the article's deck here, if Barnes & Noble goes out of business, it'll be a disaster for book lovers, which I cannot disagree with, really. But in his quaint little final summation, Shepard writes that the irony of cultural abundance is that it still relies on old filters and distribution channels to highlight significant works, and that without Barnes & Noble, we will be adrift in the sea of pulp. Well, I think our listeners won't be surprised that you may have some quarrels with that, and because in particular, uh, the whole idea of old filters kind of gets you going. Yeah, you know, I, I do have a few thoughts about the article. And the first is that, yeah, it's obviously true that Barnes & Noble is struggling. And, you know, Alex Shepard is actually right about a few things in the articles, and that it would not be good for the publishing industry for Barnes & Noble to, to go out of business, that Barnes & Noble does do large orders for book publishers, and that indie stores will never have the scale to make up what the loss of Barnes & Noble will be. But much of Barnes & Noble's problems comes from the management's desires to cling to the old filters that Shepard celebrates in his last paragraph there. Those old filters and that desire to remain an old filter have made Barnes & Noble just that, an old filter. For me, Barnes & Noble's main problems stem from the fact that it's been facing backward toward an age when it dominated bookselling in this country, rather than pushing forward toward more innovative solutions in this networked internet world. Uh, And Amazon and other web companies, meanwhile, have been on offense. Uh, They've been innovating while Barnes & Noble has been defending its legacy model. And the fact is, no. We don't need old filters. We need new filters. And that's the main reason why I think Barnes & Noble is struggling. Uh, And second, one thing that was noticeably missing here from from Shepard's piece is that I was an editor sitting in an editorial meetings throughout the 90s when it seemed like the marketing director's sole job was to tell Barnes & Noble what we could and could not publish. You know, if anything is ironic, it's that in 2016, uh, a smart young reporter like Alex Shepard, who actually worked at Melville House for a while, 
Powell, so he has some background in the book business, uh, would be defending the company that many actually blame for destroying the vibrant patchwork of local indie bookstores in the United States, and that did so by pushing publishers towards these large orders and large print runs of sensational commercial mass market books. So, you know, many in the media love to like forecast doom and they love to bash Amazon and with reason, I would agree. But before there was Amazon, I can tell you from firsthand experience that Barnes and Noble was often the locus of publisher frustration. And you know, I could go on here, but you know, I'm just going to close on this point, which leaves me kind of conflicted because Shepard has written a story that basically says if Barnes and Noble goes out of business, uh, it would be bad. But of course, the internet sees that story and the internet now believes that Barnes and Noble is going out of business like tomorrow. That's kind of the spin that we're seeing of the story. And you know, the losses that it posted again this week, no doubt, will fuel that narrative, even though those losses have become sort of a quarterly rite of passage for the bookseller for a long, long time. But I think we need to make clear that no, Barnes & Noble is not on the verge of going out of business. Uh, yes, it needs to be right-sized. And yes, it needs to compete better for sure. But you know, what I'm really conflicted about is that you know this piece from Shepard actually kind of plants the seed that Barnes & Noble is in some sort of corporate hospice that, you know, and I wonder if booksellers are really going to rally around them if they believe that, or if they're just going to abandon them. Because frankly, you walk into a Barnes & Noble these days, and, and Shepard's right, there's a lot of toys and other things there. I, I just don't know how people are going to react to this piece. And I, I don't I, I don't love the idea of people thinking that Barnes & Noble already has one foot in the grave, even though it's been struggling for, for many, many years. Now, are publishers supposed to find ways to prop up Barnes & Noble? All I can say to that is, let's hope not. Because one, that might interfere with Barnes & Noble's actually making some of the tough calls that it needs to make to compete better. But more importantly, the last time the publishing industry tried to step in and help Barnes & Noble, they wound up in a massive price-fixing conspiracy that cost them many millions of dollars. Well, you know, another good reason for listening to this podcast, the great analysis you just gave us there, and it makes a nice segue to our next topic, that price-fixing conspiracy uh, you spoke of, the last chapter of which has arrived, we think, this week with Apple releasing $400 million in refunds that have been due to consumers. So is this the end of this long-running saga? Uh, alas, it seems to be yes. And this is actually really good news for Barnes & Noble because the refunds are out. And we've been seeing some messages from people about the size of their refunds, and uh, they're pretty big. Uh, they're definitely much bigger than the publisher refunds. So a quick primer for our listeners who may not have checked their emails in the past few days. If you got a refund when the publishers paid out their settlements in 2014, you're going to get a refund now. And because the Apple paid out $400 million compared to the 166 million that the publishers paid out, it's going to be a much bigger payout than you got previously. Uh, so like the publisher settlements, this settlement from Apple also covers books that were purchased between April 1, 2010 and May 21st of 2012. Uh, these credits are going to be automatically delivered directly into your account uh, at the major book retailers. And these include Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and Apple. And consumers are going to receive almost seven bucks, six dollars and ninety three cents for every purchased ebook that was a New York Times bestseller during that period that I just named, and a dollar fifty seven credit for all other ebooks. At this point, I'm sorry to say you can't get cash. You actually needed to make that call whether or not to get a check by the end of 2014, which I thought was pretty strange. Uh, you know that you would have people make this decision years before they even knew how much they were going to get back. But you know you're out of luck if you didn't 
and ask for a check at this point. But you know, here's a crucial point too. These credits can actually be used for any product or service offered by the retailer, unlike the publisher settlements, which actually restricted refunds to being spent on book purchases, whether print or digital. So I think it remains to be seen how much of these refunds are actually going to wind up being spent on T-shirts or iTunes or Prime subscriptions. But you know, suffice it to say, a nice chunk of change from Apple is set to fall to the book business's bottom line. Well, as the author of the book about this case, The Battle of 999, uh, you must greet this news of these refunds with, with sort of mixed emotions. Uh, do you think we are really, really, truly, finally done? Yeah, you're right. And, you know, yes, it would appear that we are done, although I still think there's some meat left on the carcass for us. <laughs> you know, a postmortem perhaps is in the offing here. Uh, an update for the book, of course, is probably, I'm certainly in the works. But, you know, the legal case is over. And with the Apple and publisher settlements, you know, I just have to marvel some almost $566 million was refunded to ebook consumers. And that doesn't include another 50 million, at least probably double that that was actually paid in legal fees. Um, but let's also take a moment here to marvel at the swiftness of this all. You know, a lot of critics during the course of this case were eager to savage Judge Denise Coe's handling of this case. But how many cases have we talked about on this show that are still dragging on and have been dragging on for the better part, if not more than a decade? And here you had a complex antitrust suit with multiple plaintiffs. You had the states, a consumer class, and the Department of Justice. You had multiple defendants, Apple and five publishers, and the case is not only decided, but it's all but done. The appeals are over. The refunds are out. And this all happened in four years. To me, that is just astounding. Uh, and that includes, you know, full appeals reviews, not only on the main case, but also on a number of side issues as well, such as the monitor that she appointed for Apple. And, you know, and every single one of Judge Coates' decisions was affirmed by an appeals court. And I, I just marvel at the efficiency of how Judge Coates managed this case, especially with all the criticism and attack swirling around her and the soundness of her reasoning, especially given the volumes, the millions of pages of evidence that she had to wade through to make this happen. But yes, Chris, uh, it does now appear that the Apple case is over. And uh, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad about it. <laughs> well, you know, if, if, if you're going to be crying in your beer, it does sound like you're going to raise that glass to Judge Coda. Uh, look forward to getting together with you on that postmortem, if not here on the show, in person sometime. And, and finally, quick reminder, you're going to be traveling off to Orlando, Florida for the American Library Association's meeting that comes this weekend. Yeah, we've talked about this on the, on the program for the last uh, two weeks, I think, and finally it's here. So uh, I will be in Orlando through Monday of next week. If any of our listeners are going to be there, just stop by the Publishers Weekly booth, leave me a message. I'd love to see you and talk to you about goings on in the library world. And I'll just quickly remind listeners that you can read all of our pre-ALA features on the Publishers Weekly website, and that includes panel picks if you're heading down to the ALA in Orlando, uh, also author highlights, and that's all for free on the Publishers Weekly weekly website. And if you're here today already, you know, Friday uh, at 1 p.m., I'll be keynoting the uh, Book Industry Study Group's ALA Summit here, and I'll be talking about ebooks. What else? What else? Well, plenty else if you <laughs> listen to Andrew Albanese every week on Beyond the Book. Andrew Albanese, Senior Writer for Publishers Weekly. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, as always. 
Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center with its subsidiaries Rights Direct in the Netherlands and Ixis in the United Kingdom. CCC is a global leader in content workflow, document delivery, text and data mining, and rights licensing technology. You can follow Beyond the Book on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the free podcast series on iTunes or at our website, beyondthebook.com. Our engineer and co-producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book. Mm-hmm.